hello, you're listening to Two Broke Writers. Rants, raves, reviews, and sometimes even rewrites about the media you love. More on that later. Just a warning that there are spoilers for Six the Musical. We don't think they interfere with enjoying them at all. Also, we will be discussing a few other texts, such as Margaret Atwood's The Penelope Ad, Amazon's Cinderella, Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber. All mild spoilers, as opposed to spicy spoilers. Just letting you know that we will be discussing some confronting themes in terms of women's oppression. Hello, and welcome back to Two Broke Writers. Um, two writers who haven't been paid for anything we've written, but we're claiming the title anyway, who have lead accents from Australia. With me today is Queen of the Castle, the fourth wife of Henry VIII, also did not have to really be married to him at all. Good on you. So that is Melissa. Hello. Also, you look a bit more German, so... <laughs> Well, at least you look more German than I do, which is, you know, sample size of two. You can, anyway. you can tell that to my Russian ancestors. Oh, yeah, they wouldn't like that with me. <laughs> um, and I am probably closest to the sixth wife of Henry VIII. I feel like I've survived two marriages. I don't know why. I've, I haven't been married. Um, I'm Lynn, and I also feel like I probably won't get remembered for what I'd like to be remembered for. But anyway, that's the way. Um, Legacies are a bit difficult to control, that's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> so, in case you had a guest from the title, the thumbnail, or this opening. We are talking about Six, the musical today. We also open that to a discussion of feminist revisionism, feminist storytelling, all things feminist really, so all the good stuff. Um, we're aware that some of these topics are a little bit controversial, but we will try and discuss them from the perspective as writers in a way that interests and engages you, and hopefully you learn something, and hey, um, feel free to um, contribute your inbox to the conversation too. Yeah, so Nikki, do you want to give us a little bit of background? What is Six, if people haven't seen it? I'm not sure if it's actually toured in the US or, or beyond uh, Britain and Australia, so maybe for anyone who might not have seen it? Sure thing. So Six is a musical slash concert in which the six wives of Henry VIII have banded together to retell their stories um, according to their own um, perspectives. It's the best comparison I can make is maybe Hamilton in that they've taken um, modern uh, styles of song sort of in the pop rock end rather than trying to go for music that is really from the Tudor era. But they've deliberately done that to connect with current audiences and give it a fresh new flavour. It's also more of a concert than most musicals are. There isn't that much set, there isn't that much plot. Most of the story is just within the songs, which are very much like character songs, I feel like. Yes. Often. Villains get them in Disney movies. Sometimes you get them when a new character is introduced. I feel like it's a very medium-specific thing. It wouldn't work in a movie or a TV show where a character just monologues about themselves. It's like, wow, this is a real big exposition. But it's a very much a format suited choice. So it's quite unique, it's quite new. I think it's only been around for a few years now. Unfortunately, there is no recording available of it online. There should be, because then, you know, people would bootleg it less. But yeah, um, that's quick summary. So, um, and in case you wanted to learn the names, there's um, Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, who often gets people have portrayed her as, you know, ugly and old and Clearly that's why Harry Gate remarried, because their marriage wasn't good. Actually, he was cheating on her at the time already. Mm -hmm. um, she was faithful to him, he was not. Then we've got Anne Boleyn, who's often portrayed as the temptress because she broke up 
um, the marriage between Catherine of Aragon and Henry. Well, he, she was not his first affair, I have to say that. And also, um, she's the reason why he created the Church of England, so he could annul his marriage and marry her. Yep. It's followed by Jane Seymour, the one who gave him a son he wanted desperately, but also she died shortly after giving birth to her son. We have um, Anna of Cleves, who is the one he saw a portrait of, thought she was beautiful, met her in real life, and then went nuff. So she got a very nice settlement, but never really had to be married to him. Pretty sweet deal, hey? Catherine Howard, who was only about 17 when she married him, and is also like Anne Boleyn, uh, portrayed as a temp, uh, portrayed as a sort of temptress, seductress. Then we've got Catherine Parr, his last wife, one who was only slightly closer in age to him, and she outlived him. So the main um, opening line of six that everyone knows, um, which is a particularly catchy and effective one, is divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And it sounds too perfect, but that's actually how it happened. I, I'm pretty sure someone who's from England can correct me if I'm wrong, that is actually like a catchy tune they teach school children in history to try and remember yeah, how, um, how the wives that's, survived. That's horrible history. It's, it's, the wording is highly similar. It's very catchy. Um, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, so, and of course, as we've said, there are spoilers um, for Six the Musical. Mm -hmm. We will try to avoid spoilers in the other texts that we talk about, though. But it's, it's the kind of uh, musical that you can enjoy, even if you know what happens, because it's playing off a lot of people might already know the history. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, you already listened to the soundtrack before we saw it, correct? Yes, Lynn had seen it um, before I went, and then we went together as well. But I listened to the soundtrack, and I think the point, you go kind of for the, the atmosphere and for seeing how all the songs tie together. And I actually enjoy listening to, to soundtracks before I go to musicals, because then it's easier to pick up on what's happening. Like, these songs are really word-dense, yes. um, so you usually have to listen to them a couple of times before the first thing you like is the beat, and then you start to really look into the lyrics and hmm. understand what they're saying. Yeah, and whilst I don't think that um, musicals have to have super deep lyrics all the time, like there are some songs in musicals where you just go, great, this is a love song, great, <laughs> this is a sad song, that's all pretty self-explanatory. But I think that they did something different by really putting all of the plot in the songs. And I yes. feel like that's more effort that is made in songs most of the time, to be honest. It's, it's quite impressive. And yeah, um, oh, by the way, in terms of um, going for the atmosphere, the first time I went to see it, there was a bridal party oh. there. Like, it was like a hen's night thing. That's great. And, admittedly, yes, it's about... Um, it's talking about how bad their marriage was. So kind of the opposite of a hen's night in terms of subject content, but I, the atmosphere is totally there. It feels yes. like a girl's night, and I think this is something to describe, but whilst the outfits are in some ways a little bit cabaret, it feels like they are dressing how they want to dress themselves. And in fact, um, we actually noticed that one of the um, actresses that we saw had a pantsuit, and yes. um, this was the first production for which um, one of the women had a pantsuit rather than like a short skirt and tights. So they're clearly, or as you'd hope, being a feminist show, that they're happy to make um, adjustments according to the women's comfort, and that is important. Yeah. Yes, that was that's been really nice. At the same time, giving them sexy outfits. I think that is a really hard balance because, yeah. um, as Melissa knows, a lot about has written about. <laughs> it's easy for sexualization of women to be presented as liberation 
Um, whereas arguably, in any situation where I guess a woman's outfit is not completely of her own choice, or yeah, do you want to unpack that? Actually, you know more about this than I do. Yeah, sure. So, essentially, there's a lot of in conversation in media about how being sexually explicit in what you wear or what you say is supposed to be incredibly liberating for you as a woman, and that's a lot of you know the pushes of of. Later, yeah, feminism is, well, we can wear what we want now, we can do what we want, we can be with who we want, and, but the problem with that is that it's, it's essentially putting all of what what liberation for women means is on how they, making themselves seem sexy, Um, which doesn't make any sense. It's usually actually more playing into patriarchal structures and capitalism and all of that. So in in the case of six, you could, some people might argue, like, um, well, if they didn't dress, you know, sexily with with little skirts and tight clothing and things like that, well, why would guys, like, want to come? Like, what's in it for them for the show? But I think you're right in that they have struck a good balance because it feels like there was different, like, lengths of the skirts. Like, some were, like, knee length, some were a lot higher. So you did feel like there was actual sort of women's input in it rather than they felt like they had to be just show everything for the sake of Mm. this is a feminist media piece therefore we need to be Mm. revealing in everything we wear also their stockings are pretty dark because i feel like um like actually a really good comparison and sorry this is a bit of a tension on the male gaze but i think a really good example to draw here is comparing the outfits of Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn and <laughs> you Suicide Squad versus Birds of Prey. Because yes. Birds of Prey, it looks like she dresses herself. Sure, sometimes she wears a sports bra and like, well, like, you know, short shorts, but she looks comfortable at the same time as looking good. And she looks good because her clothes match. She's picked things that suit her body type. And that doesn't have to be, you know, cleavage all out there. Whereas you look at her Suicide Squad outfit, you've got like these really revealing fishnet stockings, which she's wearing undies, not Ugh. even pants. Um, she's clearly wearing a massive push-up bra and her shirt is not really see-through so you can see that and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it's just, I, I feel like that is a perfect example of the difference between the male gaze which is a suicide version with the fishnets and her pants versus um, birds of prey where yeah, she's still dressed in a sexy way but it's more how she wants it's more what makes her feel good and that's something that the director, who is also a woman just FYI, um, talked about with the cast and she said that they and went, okay, what makes you feel good? What makes you feel sexy? Go for that. Yeah, um, that's and great. And it feels like that's what they did with six. I mean, we don't know. It feels like the way that the skirts come out at the sides, it's imitating how much ball gowns come out mm-hmm. from that Tudor period. And yes. also, a lot of them aren't very busty, which is actually mm. the opposite of period dramas. Like, hey, let's take the Tudors, which is all about Henry oh, yes. and his six wives. And they do that horrible thing of that period shows do where they have women wearing corsets, but like no nothing else underneath or like nothing else with it it's like women wouldn't have done that like you just wear a corset yeah. by itself yeah. nothing else and it's because it's made to look sexy because it's you know shapely and mm-hmm. it's showing their cleavage whereas they, they didn't do that in six like there's sleeves there's a lot of texture going on reminiscent of the Tudor styles it's all kind of funky and fun one of them has shorts and a little jacket yeah I mean my one thing is did they really have to wear heels but that's just a personal thing of I think heels are literal torture and I have no idea how you dance in them so mm, but yeah so yeah but unfortunately that's probably an industry standard and yes yeah. I, I'm totally with you there and also I think that if there wasn't such I think 
it was important to, in some ways they wanted to show that these queens were sexy because they wanted to show that their young women like the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to show that they weren't just these like baggy old creatures in full gowns who were like sort of unrelatable and removed from them. And let's say if, I think you have to judge like anything, you have to judge six in the context of what other media there is and how women yes. look and dress in other media. If women were dressed how they wanted to in all other parts of the media, then we could say that they dress in a um, objectifying fashion in six. But six relative to other musicals, for instance, or like just mm-hmm. anything that's American TV, <laughs> they're dressed in a way that looks significantly more comfortable, more personal. Yeah, I guess it's part of the retelling component of it, isn't it? They decided to, if they did full length gowns, no matter what, the kind of fabric styles, even if they did things like stud or gold, it would still give you the impression of like a much more historical show. Yes. But with such a, a dramatic change in like skirt length, it's very clearly signifying like this is not as you'd see it in like a his, history textbook. Yes. Like this is, we're trying to do something different. So I guess mm. it's trying to do that visual communication of, yeah. of a retelling. We talked about format mostly outfits for here, which I think is important. But moving on to what we liked about it and more of the content. Um, so I absolutely love this musical. Yes. I didn't, I feel like it took a while for it to hit me. But what I like is that the songs are so detailed and personal. I think that it doesn't take having had the same experiences and a lot of women nowadays will not have been married to a horrible guy that's three times their age and have had no choice for the matter. Um, unfortunately that does still happen but in terms of the audience that they're getting to which is more like I guess places it, of privilege shall we places, say. Places of privilege yeah let's put it bluntly. They present the songs in such a way that you can empathise with all of the women and um, I think that if you know and love women in your life, you'll be able to empathise with these characters so deeply because you've got Anne Boleyn who there's so many books and movies all about her ambitions and how devious she was and Mm. um, whereas I loved that they decided to flip that and they made her completely apolitical and like Anne Boleyn's song is probably the silliest and they, I think something clever they do in terms of trying to add modern storytelling devices they make it so that she's always texting Henry and yeah. it's like it's, it's a weird little hookup and then it exploded her like, comment goes viral and she yeah. says that Catherine yeah. should have her that head cut went off viral <laughs> yes um, and then and like how it's just all these rumours ballooned and because Henry was in the public eye they clearly emphasised that he was already out drinking he was a terrible husband he had no sense of fidelity and so she clearly also having just moved into this context of the court because she did not have that status before yes. now she's in this crowd and she sees okay this is just how Henry the Eighth behaves this is, this is normal here alright I'll do what he's doing I'll cheat on him as well maybe this is what I'm meant to do and I think that is a way fairer interpretation because whilst we know the facts of what happened and they stick to those facts we don't know how she felt we don't know what her motivations were and so I think that that sort of portrayal does a really good job of taking the facts and offering an alternate interpretation. They're not trying to correct the historical record. They're just pointing out, hey, don't make assumptions about this woman just because of what she did and how historians Mm -hmm. have presented her. And so I think it's really funny and lighthearted. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point about um, how they're sort of spin... They're not changing history. Like, nothing about the facts has been changed in this musical, so it's not revising history, but it's, it's offering a different interpretation. And I think that's really crucial to understand that all history, because we don't have... It's not like every historical person ever sat down, wrote an autobiography about every single minute of their life. We knew exactly what they are thinking. Even if they did do that, they could it's be not, lying. And, and it's not objective. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that most feminist literature does do that. I think feminist literature sometimes get a, gets a bad rap because it reveals unpleasant things about love to historical figures that people didn't want to think about, especially yeah. about men in power. It's mm-hmm. unflattering because it puts people in a different light. But I think most of the time, people who write, and of course not everyone, but people who write feminist literature know that history is unchangeable. Yes, we're never going to know all the facts, but there are more than, there's more than one way to put the pieces together. Yes. And, and that's why we're kind of classifying, some people call it um, feminist revision, but I would argue it's more along the line of femi- feminist retelling, because they're not, unless it's a fictional tale, in which case you can revise it, but in terms of history, it would be a retelling, it's a different way of telling a story. Mm. The way I think yeah. about it is that, like, my, you could tell a, a story of something that happened to you and a family member, and you and that family member would say it in a very different way. <laughs> like, yeah. The things you focus on are different, and so this is just putting it through the same historical events, but through what if we stop looking at it through Henry's perspective and through the perspective of his wives? Like, what yeah. do they have to deal with? He's not the hero here. He's, yes. if anything, the villain. I think retelling is also a kinder term because it also fits into the discourse of how we think about things that get retold the most. Greek mythology, the Bible, and fairy tales. The things that get told, retold the most in sort of European, American, Australian literature. In English language and literature, yeah. None of those things, there is no sacred text like well, the Bible is Let's not get into the Bible and translation issues. That's a whole other podcast, guys. (laughs) But just Greek mythology and fairy tales, there is no one true version. Homer didn't write most of the Iliad, and there was no single version of event because people carry these stories around and have spread them across different cultures and time and places. There are so many different versions of the stories, and so I think that retelling is a good term because it shows how everyone has their own different versions, and it's worth trying to look at what each version has in common, um, what new questions are being raised, and what a different interpretation says about the interpreter, the text, the audience, all of that. Definitely. And I, I think in terms of, so the audience doesn't get a misunderstanding, that it's not just that they're sort of shifting, showing, okay, here are the events that happened, but what about what do the wives have to say about it? There is an overarching sort of message or a theme that they're trying to get across yes. in six. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, um, I can start us off on that. So, the premise is that they're having a competition to determine who had to put up with the most BS from Henry, and it's there's going to be a winner at the end, and that will be their leading lady. And so that is the premise for them singing all their songs about their experience with Henry. And you get used to that, you get used to a bit of amusing banter. But as the um, musical goes on, you realise that some of the, those arguments are becoming more toxic and more hateful. And you get to the last wife, Catherine Parr, and she opens it up to, we shouldn't be competing. We all have to put up with the same things. Why does there have to be a winner? You know, that's not fair. We're all, we're all great. And I 
think that was, it's, it's definitely not a new feminist message, but it feels like it's one that we haven't heard for a very long time. Um, not since maybe, I don't know, second or third wave fem feminism in terms of this is not about individual choice or liberation or, you know, it's not about the elevation of one single individual. It's that women should um, realise when they're being pitted against each other by the patriarchy and learn to work together for collective empowerment instead. And so that was both reflected in the narrative arc that the story leads you to, but it was also reflected in how there's no ensemble, there's no backup dancers. Um, yes. All of the queens are backup dancers for each other. They're all mm. the leading ladies. There is and no backing vocals. And so that's why there is no, exactly, there is no winner of the competition. The point is realizing that there shouldn't be a competition. So, yes. Yeah. I think they do a good job, and it even mirrors some of that history um, you were talking about. Where is it? The first two wives. What's the second wife's name? Um, Anne Boleyn. Yeah, Anne Boleyn was sort of pitted as the temptress, and it's kind of putting again those. Her, she's the villain, right? Mm -hmm. Same goes for um, Catherine Howard, the yes. young one, who's also put as the temptress, and it's like she was seventeen. He was in his 40s. Like, who do you think? And he was the king. Who do you think had power in that situation? Exactly, exactly. So it's it's interesting that they were sort of pulling from those his how history has always put women in competition with one another, and rather, and this is sort of remaking that as well, remixing it. And that can bring us to um, a great quote from Lisa Tuttle. She defines feminist theory as asking new questions of old texts which I think is a really good neutral description here. And I think that Six is definitely doing that. Sure, it's not basing off one source material, it's going off history, but I think they chose well in picking Wives of Henry VIII because at least the sort of European and Australian schooling systems, I feel like the Tudors, because they're more colorful than some of the other figures from the Middle Ages, they're definitely the sort of figures that you end up studying. And so they sort of have enough pop culture references going on. There's enough movies made about them that the sort of history that quite a few people know at least a little bit about. And so asking new questions of those assumptions that we have and going, oh, that's really valid. Is that actually based on evidence? Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's what they've done here. Definitely. It's, it's a great show for making you reconsider, <laughs> not to bash history um, from lessons from school, <laughs> but the way in which we're presented material or taught history is so simple, which makes sense in one sense because we don't have much time in class and we're trying to get through however many thousands of years, but in being, in simplifying, we often sort of forget that nuance yes. and we, t and in history tends to sort of default to the male perspective of events, mostly because people they were the recorded, ones in power. they were the ones in power and people recorded things about them or. Yeah. And, um, I think we should make an important distinction here branding. Um, there's feminist revision and there's feminist branding and I think that texts can have both. So Six of course is quite clearly marketed as a feminist piece and because that is seen as a sort of text that is appealing therefore people want to see that. However it's worth noting that I think because feminism is now popular or at least some I would argue simplified version of it, you do find feminist branding for things that aren't necessarily feminist when you critique them and I think that's quite an interesting topic because clearly it's great that feminism is you know in lots of our movies and tv shows it's something to discuss but yeah 
to be clear that that's something quite different to what we're talking about, feminist revision. Not everything that calls itself feminist or girl power or whatever is actually supporting women's rights. Yeah. Something has to essentially prove that it's feminist by having a not what I call um, like hollow feminism. If anyone ever says girl power, most likely it is uh, ho hollow feminism because they're simply using it to kind of draw that female audience. So yeah. if it's it's feminist branding, if it's they're using it for to get more money or to try and they think this is the edgy way to connect with the young female youth. Yeah. And by saying you can do anything, you can do everything, and they completely to forget how actually there are a lot of obstacles in yeah. your way to doing everything or anything. Yeah. So Six is an interesting example, as you were saying, of both. It does have a feminist branding um, because, you know, it's got women up front, it's very clear this is a, a female show, and that's their selling point, but it's a valid selling point because it actually delivers on that. Exactly, <laughs> and it's, it's actually a good story. It's not misusing it somehow, yes. and I think they live up to it. The cast is all female, the band is always all female, and also it's so many women of color always yes like both in the band and in the cast which is great and i don't think that's tokenistic when a point is being made of it like i don't know why theater works this way but it seems like once the original like run of a show is done with um a diverse cast then it seems like it sets the precedent that every future run of that show also has to have a diverse cast so mm -hmm. six always seems to have at least a moderately diverse cast which is awesome Yes, definitely. And I think Hamilton has proved that you don't need to have, it's kind of what they call blind casting, and this is a whole other conversation, but just because, you know, whatever, we assume that they were wholly just very pale people in history doesn't actually mean that that's the case. You know, people of color definitely existed in all parts of Europe in, in the past. And yeah. if you want to fight me on that online, you're welcome to, I'm ready to if you can well. find me. Yeah. Yeah try, and prove, yeah, try and prove to us that um, people of colour didn't exist 200 years ago. Yeah, try. <laughs> yes, please. We, we, we open the we invitation. Welcome, <laughs> we welcome the fight. Thinking about feminist branding, that, I think that's something that you brought up, Dad, that Disney live-action adaptations have definitely been doing recently with their Disney princess stories. Yes, and I, I think... It's really interesting because the comparison I was making was, or at least thinking about when I presented sort of this part of the conversation, was that there's the Cinderella from um, Disney's live action remake, which I actually, I do enjoy. I mean, I like all pretty much Disney films, even if sometimes I have problems. <laughs> but then there's also the Cinderella with uh, Amazon. I think it was distributed through most yes. recently with Camilla Cabello, I think it is. And that was really, it's really interesting to think about because the only way that they made it feminist, essentially, was they had to make significant changes to the actual structure of the story yes. and what happened and the choices the character made. You can't just package something as feminism. Feminism is not packaging. It is structural change. And I think that, that applies to movies as well as anything, government, um, society in general, if we want to get into it. Yeah. I, I know some people critique the Amazon one because they said, well, she still ends up in a romantic relationship, so is it really a feminist retelling? I, I, I think that's a mis- Feminism and romance can come yeah. just FYI. And I would argue, yes, it is a feminist thing because, um, minor spoilers ahead, essentially the, the prince doesn't act that Cinderella, they don't actually get married by the end of the film, by the way, they just kind of 
I don't know, boyfriend, girlfriend equivalent. <laughs> and, but the prince's sister becomes the queen, so she becomes the ruler. Cinderella, another spoiler, um, opens up her own dress shop business. She makes all her dresses. So she was the one who had the ambitions versus the prince. The prince literally said, he was like, I don't know what I want to do. So, and she says, well, I need to travel overseas for my dressmaking. And he says, well, I'll just tag along. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can have a romance and still be a feminist movie. It's just about women are allowed to want romance and to want love and desire it. But I think the problem is when, when all, every movie was about that. And, and that was the defined, only. And when it defines them and they have yes. nothing else. If they, they have no other personality them. type except they want to fall in love with the prince. It's yeah. definitely a problem. Yeah, okay. So I haven't seen the um, Amazon remake of Cinderella, but I trust your judgment on that. And it sounds like they made significant plot changes, which is what you need to do. And that is why I was upset with the more recent version of Beauty and the Beast. Before I get into this, uh, the YouTuber and author Lindsay Ellis has a great video essay just on the newer version of Beauty and the Beast. Go check that out, she does a better job. <laughs> but anyway, Beauty and the Beast is one of my favourites growing up, probably because um, Belle reads. She's a bit more, she's, she's got all these interests, which I really liked, um, out, outside of romance. She was trying to save her father, and yes, definitely Stockholm Syndrome in there. But that aside for her, that she had all these motivations and then they fell in love. So I liked the order yes. of things, I liked her, the depth of her character, that she was strong, she was brave. And so I think that's what appealed to me um, when I was a kid, that she just seemed a bit more relatable than some of the other princesses because Belle was just more, I guess, like us in that sense. But anyway, um, with the new version, what bothered me about it is they marketed it as feminist and they kept insisting that they sort of they fixed problems with it. So what did they do? They made Belle an inventor, and they have her invent a weird thing to, to do with agriculture at the start, which wasn't it, wasn't, wasn't it washing clothes? Oh, washing clothes. Yeah, but it's like got animals moving in. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, great, but that had no bearing on the plot whatsoever. None of the actual plot was feminist, and yes, most of the plot is the romance, but that her being an inventor didn't empower anyone. Did she ever invent something that would help them? Like get through a situation. Did she? Did she ever do anything that? Like, yeah. Imagine um, if she didn't invented something to stop the petal from falling. Like if she somehow done something with the rose. Yeah. Imagine if she was like, you know what? You've got turned into a beast for a reason. You're gonna live with that a little bit longer because I'm not letting the petal fall. She was like, here's a. Let's make the case like anti gravity. <laughs> so the petal's just constantly suspended and never hits the bottom. <laughs> she could also chuck it in the freezer. She could invent the model. She could indeed. Yes. But yeah, I think and that comes back to the, if you're going to make something a feminist retelling, it has to be a complete shift. You can't just throw in a couple lines here and there yeah. because that's, that's not feminism. That's yeah. just acknowledging that women had struggles in a historical period. Yes. <laughs> Although, okay, this is going to sound like I'm contradicting that. Okay. I feel like there are other types of texts, and I've got a couple examples here, which don't change the plot they completely change the perspective and they add new material. So there are multiple mm -hmm. ways to make a text feminist, but I think from what we've discussed, we agree that sometimes Disney's new films haven't done so because they've only tacked it on and they've mostly branded it feminist, but it hasn't had a bearing on the plot. Whereas I guess if you change the perspective, the point of view that a story is being told from, that does yep. change the structure. Completely. I, Actually, there, there is structural change, yeah. I, I, I have hope for The Little Mermaid, live action. I, I, I know <laughs> Lynn has some thoughts on that. But 
I have a feeling they will need to change so much in that yeah. that it might be good. <laughs> I think you could push it in the her Amazon Cinderella uh, direction where Errol gets up, becomes a human, realizes that being a human sucks because she she's in pain the whole time and she can't move properly, she can't speak, and realizes how much fun she had when she was a mermaid. Also, like Eric has no ambitions whatsoever, so I don't know. Maybe he can become a mermaid with her instead. I'd, I'd be down for that. Just, just FYI. <laughs> or maybe she realizes, hey, this guy actually isn't that great, and so she just goes off and becomes a famous singer. She likes to sing and just continues being a mermaid. <laughs> but yes. Um, so other examples of structural changes seem less obvious. Um, I highly recommend Angela Carter's *The Bloody Chamber* and other stories. It is probably a 16 plus read, but what I like about it is essentially you enjoy it if you like fairy tales, which both of us certainly do. She, it feels like she takes apart fairy tales and then she puts them back together again. And what's amazing is that she changes next to none of the plot sometimes. So she, without changing the story, she just tries to make it easier to understand for modern audiences because there are some things in fairy tales that are really just weird and sometimes gory, which don't make sense to us, but were just implied yes. and had more meaning at the time. So we often get the women's perspectives. We also don't have isolated damsels like you often do in fairy tales. So characters have mothers, have all these people who they're connected to who end up saving them or helping them get out of a situation. And that's really important because, not to get on my soapbox again, but with again, feminism should be about women working together or, or women working with, with allies because you can't get anything, you can't change a whole society's perception of women as one as one woman and also it yeah. doesn't make sense to isolate women constantly in stories yeah. like everyone essentially or has or at least should have like support networks so exactly off my soapbox continue. no 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 just by changing the perspective to the woman's perspective, or sometimes, you know, the child's perspective, it completely changes the story. And you realize how much fairy tales have victim blaming in them. So pointing out that um, Red Riding Hood, as a child who had to travel through the forest at that time to deliver the necessities to her ill grandmother, who cares about whether she's on the path or not? That does not make a single difference yeah. to her safety. It also, in her version of Red Riding Hood, she returns the original element, which is from an older version of Red Riding Hood, where the wolf is not just a wolf, it's actually a man or a werewolf. And so it was a story about warning children about um, how to avoid and deal with um, predatory men, which is a really valuable lesson that we could bring back. But again, it didn't place the responsibility on Red Riding Hood for keeping herself safe. The dangerous situation is unavoidable. It's just a matter of how she deals with it and how she gets out of it. And I think that it's really powerful as well. If you're not going to tell a story about systemic change, and no, not every story has to be about systemic change, then you can tell a story about how women like made the most choices they could yes. in a restrictive situation and how that demonstrated their agency and willpower. Because there is incredible value to that too. And you can do that in such a way that isn't saying, women should be happy with their circumstances regardless, but talking about the strength of women in different lights. And I think there was another one. Uh, is it, how do I say it? Penelope? Um, Penelope, I don't know, Penelope, yeah. We won't spend too long on this. I think that's also another one I highly recommend. It's a novella written by Margaret Atwood. I've also seen a play adaptation of it. And I think it's also clever because again, Greek myths, I know that lots of people might see her version as changing the whole thing, but what's amazing is again, 
she doesn't change any of the plot. It's just that we spend the whole time at home with Penelope rather than on the Odyssey with Odysseus. We just have Penelope's perspective the whole time from when she's dead, which is great because then you get her hindsight. And also Greek mythology has the underworld and everything, so it actually makes sense for her to be yeah. like telling the story. But what you realise is that even though she had a hard time, her maids, like term slave women, had it much harder than that. And so it became an intersectional story of Melody survived the way she did, despite the adversity she faced by hurting the women of the class beneath her. So it was very intersectional and very clever. It does happen in the Odyssey that these 12 maids are just killed at the end by Odysseus when he turns back. Um, other than he just, the only reason he does is he wants to cleanse his house. And so that really happens in the book and it's really bizarre. It just happens out of nowhere. And so that's why she wrote this story, I think, was mm. she wanted to explore what Penelope went through in those 20 years that Odysseus was away. Gee, what a great guy. Um, <laughs> and when she didn't remarry, what the slave women did for her and what they lost themselves as a result. So. I think there are lots of different ways that you can add and ask new questions of text, which sure it can involve creating new material. It takes a lot of research, but there are lots of ways that you can take stories that people know and are comfortable with and you can add new meaning to them. So let's transition now to what lessons we might have learned as writers from Six or any of the other texts. Hmm. Do you want to go first? Sure, yeah, I think it's a really good case in how to take old old stories in inverted commas and make them appealing to modern audiences and they're using that through a lot of like language or scenarios we can relate to like you're talking about like the social media aspect or even just like slang from our from our time yeah. and it makes it feel irrelevant sorry relevant not relevant there <laughs> and because I think a lot of especially young people will think oh you know when they read something like Pride and Prejudice I don't know what this language they, they talk so strangely which is fair it is yeah, harder to definitely yeah. absolutely it is very difficult but I, and I think this is a really easy way to bring people history and to tell use it to tell stories but use really interesting combinations of historical fact and modern language together mm. so that's really fun yeah, another thing they did really well was just implication. I think they handled explicit content really well. Mm. Lots of euphemisms, which are very clever and very funny, and also completely went over the heads of the kids and the audience. <laughs> yes. But they also talked about violence in a quite sensitive way that was also respectful. Even Jane Seymour, who she's always talked about, so she's the only one who loved him, and she probably would have put up with a lot from him, like all the others, like his apparently because he had gout so his rage was just untapped and of course as a king you know he thought he was above the law and probably treated a lot of women horribly but talking about her staying married to him and loving him as a strength rather than a sign of docility or somehow you know um, passiveness I think they showed how you can have all these different characters alongside each other who have strengths and weaknesses that seem like the opposites, but you can have them next to each other and it works. I don't know if there are any men listening to this show, if so, hi. Um, but just having more than one woman or girl in a crew or an adventure sort of... Yes. It shows just how much you can do in terms of character depth, even if you're doing something which is all telling, no showing, like six. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, it's a real masterclass of how to make 
uh, characters distinct, especially a whole host of women that have that distinct personalities and histories and backstories and I guess plot, if you want to call history plot. It's a great book at, just, just read the lyrics and, and you could see what's happening there. Yeah. What feminist retelling would you like to do? <laughs> or how, how do you think you would write one? I think history is a really great um, goldmine for it because I think yes. simply there's just so women's lives in history have been neglected for so long and I think there's there's so much more we could look at and investigate not just women who are well known like six but women who have um, people have just ignored that do exist in history and are records about and tell their stories particularly I would like I do love women in power or in royalty and things like that, but just everyday women I think is also important. Definitely. To, yeah, that's not so much, I guess, retelling, maybe a, a re, yeah, <laughs> re-approach to the story. retelling, and that is what, like, for instance, the Penelope and actually, that's even what Six did, is that it's retelling by changing the, the point of view. Yes. And even though you might not be changing the plot, I think Six and the other texts we've talked about today show just how significant that can be. I think it's time for our unpaid plugs. It is. Do you want to go first? Sure thing. Um, I unintentionally chose a kind of feminist piece, even though people might not realise that it is. So, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the um, movie that came out in 2000. So, fun fact, uh, I also learned whilst watching this film that my mother went to um, briefly the same town as um, the lead actresses. That was really cool <laughs> to discover, but I won't get into that. Anyway, I think it was really clever because not only had all these fight scenes, you also had all this complex plot that sometimes like it felt like they never spelled it out to you, you had to work it out yourself. There was no fight between good and evil, there wasn't a distinct bad guy and what really worked for that is that the protagonist was a young woman who she starts off, she doesn't want to get married, She's she's she feels that she's lived her whole life being her father, a nobleman's daughter and now she's about to become a nobleman's wife. She doesn't want that and it's the film is really about what she, figuring out what she wants in her life. Does she want to be a warrior? Because there are some women warriors, but not many. Does she want to be something else? And you go through all of her experiences. It's a very clever film. It's also a romance, and it's one of the most respectful films in terms of respectful male love interests. Because I feel like it's eerily normal in romance and dramas for the male characters to stalk the women or the women mm. reject them and then they take that as a challenge and they spend yeah. the whole movie proving themselves as worthy to the woman. There was none of that. Multiple men in this film are rejected and sometimes they're really upset but they take it. They respect the woman's wishes. There are some relationships where the people don't end up being together and that's really sad but everyone's okay with it. <laughs> every time there was like pretty much nothing that was non-consensual and it made me realize wow the bar is really low for movies we're seeing, <laughs> used to seeing so much stuff which yeah. does not involve consent and that is not cool but yeah great film it's well, it's probably on netflix in some countries it's on netflix in australia highly recommend awesome i'm gonna be sneaky and have two plugs but i'll make it quick first one is there's a great podcast you can find it on Spotify or in other platforms I imagine called What's Her Name, which highlights uh, women and their stories throughout history. So it's kind of, it ranges from, from pirates to queens to like leaders of rebellion. So it's a really great look into history. 
<laughs> and I also recommend the book uh, My Lady Jane. It's by three authors, Cynthia Han, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. It's just, it's not historically accurate, so I will just say it straight off the bat, but it's what if Lady Jane Grey um, didn't lose her head, but instead was like given in marriage, but it is one of the funniest books I think I've read in a really long time. And it's just, it's just a great ride, and it is so, not historically accurate intentionally, but it's also a hilarious read. So that should, uh, yeah, give you, it, scratch your history itch even more. Yeah, uh, we all need some light reads sometimes. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm about to start reading uh, Circe by Madeline Miller. I promise I, I don't just read feminist revisionist texts. <laughs> I promise. So she says. Well, I was just reading my children's book, but it's got every person. Although I don't it's also feminist. Anyway. Um, Amazing. Yeah, we all need some light reads sometimes. Thanks, Sam. Goodbye. <laughs>